Let me invite you to open God's Word with me this morning to a couple of uh, places. Leviticus chapter 16 as well as 1 John uh, chapter 4 as we begin a new message series today uh, titled Altars. So we've been uh, in Mark's Gospel for some time now. We just concluded our final message series from the Gospel of Mark last week. We certainly don't want to leave those truths behind, uh, but we take those truths, namely the truth of the life and the ministry, the death and resurrection of Jesus uh, with us as we look at the rest of God's Word through that lens. But in the Bible, uh, an altar uh, was a structure built uh, for sacrifices of worship made to God. So altars are places of sacrificial worship, and certainly our God is worthy of just such worship. Today we're going to be uh, all over the place just a little bit, but uh, we'll primarily be in Leviticus chapter 16, so let me encourage you to uh, look at God's Word uh, with me. Uh, For most of us, it's probably been a while since we heard a message from uh, the book of Leviticus Uh, But in order for us to rightly understand, to fully understand the significance of that old rugged cross, uh, we need to know the truths conveyed in Leviticus. So uh, let's look at those together. Leviticus chapter 16, let me invite you to join me standing for the reading of God's Word. Um, I'll read portions of Leviticus 16, and then I'll read uh, from 1 John chapter 4. Scripture reads this way. Uh, Verse 1, it says, The Lord spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron who died when they approached the Lord. The Lord said to Moses, Tell your brother Aaron that he is not to come whenever he chooses into the most holy place behind the curtain in front of the atonement cover on the ark, or else he will die. For I will appear in the cloud over the atonement cover. This is how Aaron is to enter the most holy place. He must first bring a young bull for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering. He is to put on the sacred linen tunic with linen undergarments next to his body. He is to tie the linen sash around him and put on the linen turban. These are sacred garments. So he must bathe himself with water before he puts them on. From the Israelite community, he is to take two male goats for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering. Aaron is to... Offer the bull for his own sin offering to make atonement for himself and his household. Then he is to take the two goats and present them before the Lord at the entrance to the tent of meeting. He is to cast lots for the two goats, one lot for the Lord and the other for the scapegoat. Aaron shall bring the goat whose lot falls to the Lord and sacrifice it for a sin offering. But the goat chosen by lot as the scapegoat shall be presented alive before the Lord to be used for making atonement by sending it into the wilderness as a scapegoat. Look down to verse 20. When Aaron has finished making atonement for the most holy place, the tent of meeting and the altar, he shall bring forward the live goat. He is to lay both hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the wickedness and rebellion of the Israelites, all their sins, and put them on the goat's head. He shall send the goat away into the wilderness in the care of someone appointed for the task. The goat will carry on itself all their sins to a remote place, and the man shall release it in the wilderness. Skip down now to verse 29 through the end of the chapter. Uh, This is to be a lasting ordinance for you. On the tenth day of the seventh month, you must deny yourselves 
and, do, and not do any work, whether native-born or a foreigner residing among you, because on this day atonement will be made for you to cleanse you. Then, before the Lord, you will be clean from all your sins. It is a day of Sabbath rest, and you must deny yourselves. It is a lasting ordinance. The priest who is anointed and ordained to succeed his father as high priest is to make atonement. He is to put on the sacred linen garments and make atonement for the most holy place, for the tent of meeting and the altar, and for the priests and all the members of the community. This is to be a lasting ordinance for you. Atonement is to be made once a year for all the sins of the Israelites. And it was done as the Lord commanded Moses. Now, 1 John chapter 4, verses 9 and 10, the scriptures read this way. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you are a God who has spoken, a God who speaks to us now, even uh, even now through your word, by the presence and guidance of your spirit. Lead us, and it's in Christ's name we pray, and for his glory. Amen. You may be seated. I bet you didn't know you were coming to church today uh, to hear that reading from Leviticus chapter uh, 16. But here's the setting. Here's what's going on. So the people of uh, God, the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, uh, the Israelites, uh, are waiting to enter the promised land. They've been delivered from slavery, from bondage in Egypt under the guidance of God's servant Moses. Uh, They're on the cusp of the land. They're at Mount Sinai. Uh, The tabernacle has been uh, constructed. And now God gives these detailed, these specific instructions regarding sacrifices and cleansing uh, the work and ministry of the priest uh, to communicate how his people are going to deal with their sin and their impurity so that he can reside among them. God has chosen to reside among them, and because He has chosen to do so, they must deal with this sin problem. And the reason they must deal with the sin problem is because God is holy. Church, God is holy. He's holy. To describe God as holy is to say that there is no one else like God. This is a characteristic, this is an attribute that uh, is really, at least initially, reserved for God. It's to say He is incomparable. He is in a category all by Himself. To say that He is holy is, in essence, a summary of every other aspect of who He is. So if we want to understand in what ways He is holy, we have to begin then to deal with uh, uh, what the other attributes of, of, of Him are. So for example, because God is God is holy because he is unlike the pagan gods. He is unlike any creature. He's unlike human beings in that he is all-powerful. He is the creator. We are the creatures. We are dependent on him for life. He is dependent on no one for life. He is distinct. He's separate. He's set apart. He's in a category all by himself. God is holy. When it comes to uh, people in this life, human beings with particular positions of prestige and, and status, 
Uh, it's not uncommon for such people to uh, always uh, sit in the box seats, right? Or to always fly first class or to only visit the Sky Lounge, uh, not to associate with, with common people. We think of maybe the president or uh, not just the president of the nation, but the president of the company, uh, the CEOs. We might think of the professional athletes, other celebrities who have a distinct position that uh, tends to set them apart from common people. But incredibly, God is not only holy, not only set apart and distinct, He is also personal. He has chosen to reveal Himself to His people and to reside among His people, to be known by His people. And at this particular point in salvation history, He did so uh, through the tabernacle and the priestly system. So the tabernacle had a most holy place, an inner most part of the tent, the holy of holies, where God dwelt in a particular way, in a special way, beyond how he uh, simply dwells everywhere as the omnipresent God. He had chosen to locate himself among his covenant people in this way at this time. The description itself, most holy place, denotes that he is a holy God. And because he is a holy God, not just anyone could enter his presence. Not just anyone could come into the most holy place. In fact, only one man could come into the most holy place, the high priest. And he could only do so at the right time on God's terms. He could only do so once a year. In fact, we read uh, right here in in verse 2, the Lord cautions Moses saying, tell Aaron that he's not to come into the most holy place just whenever he wants. In fact, verse 3, this is how Aaron is to enter the most holy place. He must first bring a young bull For a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering. He's to put on the sacred linen tunic with linen undergarments next to his body. Tie the linen sash around him and put on the linen turban. Uh, These are sacred garments. So he must bathe himself with water before he puts them on. Again, we didn't read verses 23 and 24, but they recount how once he leaves the most holy place and he prepares to make another sacrifice, a burnt offering sacrifice, he must take those garments off, bathe himself again, and put his regular garments back on. Why? Verse 30 tells us why. Because on this day, atonement will be made for you to cleanse you. Then before the Lord, you will be clean from all your sins. It's a ritual cleansing, a process here that reminds God's people, reminded God's people certainly in that day that they were dependent on His provision to maintain a relationship uh, with Him. In essence, through this system, uh, God was saying to His people, I am going to communicate with you. I am going to speak with you. I am going to enter into a relationship with you. I'm going to reside among you. You're going to be my people, but it must be on my terms. It must be on my terms. And though we live at a different point in salvation history, we no longer practice these uh, ritual cleansings. We don't offer sacrifices in the same way. Uh, the principle is the same. We must approach God on His terms. And because that is the case, church, let's hear Him. Let's hear Him. Let's listen to Him. Let's decide up front that we're going to hear from Him, that we're going to submit to Him, that we're going to let Him speak and lead in this conversation. I know this is strange stuff, stuff we read in Leviticus chapter 16 and surrounding chapters. This is 
This is not stuff that we uh, read or hear or are exposed to every day. But even so, this is the word of the Lord. So let's hear the Lord. He is God. We are not. We cannot approach Him casually. We cannot enter into His presence flippantly because sin, our sin, destroys fellowship with Him. Destroys relationship uh, with Him. We are sinful people, all of us, and sinful people need atonement. Sinful people, according to the Scriptures, need atonement. So Leviticus chapter 16 recounts a specific day, specific practice and celebration and act of worship, the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, and the annual calendar of the Israelites. It speaks of atonement time and time again. And to atone literally means to cover, implying that through atonement, uh, God no longer looks at our sin. No longer looks at us as if we're guilty, as if we're sinners uh, before Him. The word atonement speaks of the mending of a relationship that has been broken. And because of our sin, our relationship with the perfect and holy and just eternal God has been broken and needs to be mended. Atonement in the Scriptures conveys the idea of an innocent party taking the punishment for a guilty party. And so here we have the idea of sacrifice and substitute. Sacrifices not just for the people in general, but sacrifices even for the high priest, for he is not immune. For he too is a sinner. And so we read here about how the high priest must first make a sacrifice for his own sins and his own household sins. And then he is able to sacrifice on behalf of of the people. And through atonement, God accepts a substitute in the place of the sinner. And it's God who accepts this substitute and provides this substitute, providing atonement through the shedding of blood. Sinful people need atonement and shed blood, according to the Bible, shed blood brings atonement. Shed blood brings atonement. Leviticus chapter 16, verse uh, 15 says that the high priest shall then slaughter the goat for the sin offering for the people and take its blood behind the curtain and do with it as he did with the bull's blood. He shall sprinkle it on the atonement cover and in front of it. In this way, verse 16, he will make atonement for the most holy place because of the uncleanness and rebellion of the Israelites, whatever their sins have been. He is to do the same for the tent of meeting, which is among them in the midst of their uncleanness. Chapter 17 spells out this truth. I think very uh, specifically, chapter 17, verse 11, God says, For the life of a creature, for the life of a creature is in the blood, and I have given it to you to make atonement for yourselves on the altar. It is the blood that makes atonement for one's life. The author of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 9, verse 22, picks up on this same thing. Uh, We'll look at Hebrews uh, a few times Uh, This morning, for Hebrews really is a a commentary on the book of Leviticus through the lens of the gospel uh, of Jesus. So Hebrews 9.22, the author of Hebrews writes, In fact, the law requires that nearly everything be cleansed with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. So this seemingly strange 
uh, ritualism and sacrificial system, this Day of Atonement, reminded God's people uh, that sin brings death. That sin results in death. That death is the due penalty for sin against this holy and righteous and good and eternal God. Yet shed blood brings atonement. Shed blood brings atonement. The mending of that relationship. And so when sacrifices were made, we read here in in, in verse uh, 21 that the priest then lays his hands on the animal that's to be sacrificed. And elsewhere... Uh, This was a practice of of those bringing the offerings, bringing other additional voluntary uh, and sin offerings. At other times, they would come and they'd lay their hands on the animal before it was slaughtered, before it was sacrificed, in essence saying, what is about to happen to this animal should happen to me. This animal is standing in my place, taking the punishment for me. Now we might think God is rather harsh and severe, requiring the shedding of of blood. This doesn't sit so well with us, but that's because we have a man-centered perspective of sin. Church, sin is serious. And ultimately, all sin is against God. We are guilty before God because of our sin. Deserving of punishment, deserving of judgment, deserving of death, because we have rebelled against Him, pursuing what we want rather than what God wants. But amazingly, amazingly, this is the good news, amazingly, the one who is offended, all sin is an affront to God, all sin offends God. The one who is offended, though God, longs to commune with the offenders. That's us. And so God provides the sacrificial substitute. God, the one who's offended, the one whose character we have insulted, the one whose position we have insulted because of our sin and rebellion, he provides the sacrificial substitute. Leviticus chapter 17, verse 11. For the life of a creature is in the blood, and God says, I have given it to you to make atonement for yourselves on the altar. First John chapter 4, verse 10. This is love, not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. You see, God provides the substitute. He provided the animals for a time to be slaughtered on the altar, and He provided His own Son. He sent His own Son to the cross to be slaughtered on the cross, on the altar of the cross, for us. The substitute. God provides the substitute. There was a goat in On the Day of Atonement, Leviticus chapter 16, that was sacrificed for the sins of the covenant people. This is another goat, a second goat, a scapegoat. We read about this. This particular goat, I guess we might say, from a goat's perspective, was the fortunate one. Hands were laid on this goat, verse uh, 21, and all of Israel's sins were put on this goat, and it was sent out into the wilderness. Symbolizing spiritual removal of sin through alienation and separation. But this system of sacrifice and removal of sin was never meant to provide permanent forgiveness and salvation. See, the sacrificial system provided temporary reconciliation. 
temporary reconciliation between God and his, his people. There were other offerings in addition to this annual offering were given. Some of them required guilt and sin offerings. Others of them free will, peace offerings, fellowship offerings. Others voluntary. Other offerings that were given. But this particular offering in this way had to be done on on an annual basis. Think about it like this. uh, Because I have chosen to eat food every day, putting plaque on my teeth, it's a good idea to go to the dentist on a regular basis. Right, Toxie? Likewise, because God knew His people would continue sinning, continue dealing with sin, this was a festival that had to be uh, scheduled repeatedly. The need would continue. This would not eliminate the sin problem. This would continue to need to be addressed Verse 34, this is to be a lasting ordinance for you. Atonement is to be made once a year for all the sins of the Israelites. But even so, these sacrifices and this scapegoat were not sufficient. They were not enough. They were never meant to take away our sin problem on a permanent basis. They had to be continually offered, repeatedly offered in order to remove our sin issue, we needed another. A a human, someone like us to stand in the place, to be the substitute for us. The author of Hebrews says this this way, Hebrews chapter 10, verse 1, the law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming, not the realities themselves. For this reason, it can never by the same sacrifices repeated endlessly year after year make perfect those who draw near to worship. Otherwise, verse 2, would they not have stopped being offered? For the worshipers would have been cleansed once for all and would no longer have felt guilty for their sins. But those sacrifices are an annual reminder of sins. It is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. You see, these sacrifices, this whole system, the whole tabernacle system, the priestly system, the sacrificial system, the day of atonement, was pointing to something greater. It was pointing to someone greater. It was pointing to a Savior who would come. Exposing our sin and need for someone to stand in the gap for us. Pointing not to a spotless lamb, but to a perfect man who would lay down his life on the altar of the cross for the sins of the world. Pointing to the Son of God and Savior, the Messiah, the suffering servant whom Isaiah spoke of. Pointing to this one who would come. Jesus Christ is His name. He is the Son of God. He is the the Savior church that provides permanent salvation. See, the sacrificial system provided temporary reconciliation. But the sacrificial Savior provides permanent salvation. Friends, this is why He came. This is why God sent His Son. John chapter 1 declares clearly that the Son of God came, the Word of God came, the fullness of God in the flesh came and made His dwelling among us. He tabernacled among us. He came and He resided among us ultimately to give His life on the altar of the cross for the sins of of the world. author of Hebrews says it this way. Hebrews chapter 9 verse 26 
But he, the Christ, has appeared once for all at the culmination of the ages. That was at just the right time in God's plan. The culmination of the ages to do away with sin by the sacrifice of himself. Just as people are destined to die once and after that to face judgment, so Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many. And he will appear a second time, not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. Came once, bearing the penalty and the punishment for sin, providing righteousness and forgiveness to those who turn to the substitute in faith. And he will come again and gather his own to experience the fullness of salvation in him for all of eternity. Remember what John the Baptist said about Jesus? When Jesus arrives on the scene and begins his ministry, John chapter 1, verse 29, he said, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Peter says it this way in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 18 and 19 about salvation. He says, For you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. You see, all Old Testament sacrifices prepared for and pointed to the ultimate sacrifice, the the ultimate one on the altar of the cross. The Lamb of God saves sinners on the altar of the cross. Just the Lamb of God saves sinners on the altar of the cross. He gives His life perfect and spotless, sinless sacrifice, standing in the place, becoming our substitute. And incredibly, it's not us who offer the substitute in faith It is simply us who receive this gift, this substitute that God offers through faith in in Him. The Lamb of God saves sinners on the altar of the cross. And like the scapegoat from Leviticus chapter 16, who symbolizes the taking away of sin, Jesus comes and He gives His life. He nails our sins to the cross. He removes the guilt of our sin before God for all of eternity. He declares us holy in God's sight. Are you holy? Are you holy? Believer, are you you holy? Friend, are you holy? Listener, are are you holy? Are you set apart? Are you distinct? Are you separate? Declared a child of the King. A son or daughter of the Most High God through faith in Jesus Christ. Are you set apart as one who can confidently and boldly approach the throne of God through the blood of Christ that was spilled in your place? Are you washed in the blood of the Lamb? Second Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. Scriptures say, but God made him, made Jesus, made his own son. God made him who knew no sin or who had no sin, the sinless one, to become sin for us, to take our sin upon himself, do penalty and punishment of our sin, to give his life as a sin offering. He made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So that we might receive right standing before God because of the blood of Jesus that was spilled in our place. So trust in Christ's righteousness alone. Church, let's trust in His righteousness. Trust in His righteousness alone, for our best efforts fall short. Our best attempts are insufficient. Anything that we do in and of ourselves, on our own, is insufficient to be made right with God. But Jesus is sufficient 
He's necessary and He is sufficient to save us. Let's trust in His righteousness. Let's trust in His status. Let's trust in His sacrifice on the altar of the cross for us. Colossians chapter 2 states this truth this way. When, verse 13, when you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, in other words, when you were guilty, when you were still guilty because of your sin before God, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. Church, the Lamb of God saves sinners on the altar of the cross. This is God's plan to cleanse us, to free us, to restore us, to save us. How could we not bow before Him? How could we not surrender to Him and receive this gift in faith? How could we not follow Him as Lord? Lay your life before Him. Let's lay our lives before Him. May my life be laid before the King of kings and Lord of lords, the ultimate Savior. You see, Jesus cannot be our Savior if He is not also our Lord. Is He your Lord? Have you bowed before Him? Have you submitted to Him? Are you, are you following Him? May we follow Him. When I received a phone call in early 2013 from Paula Moore stating that the pastor search committee at the time believed that God was leading them to me to be potential next candidate for pastor here at Meadowbrook Baptist Church, I was shocked Humbled by the possibility, feelings of inadequacy uh, suddenly consumed me. By the way, those feelings haven't gone anywhere. You and I both hope that we trust and follow the Lord's direction in our lives. I didn't have a whole lot of confidence in myself, but I had confidence in the one who called me here. And I have confidence today in the one who saves me, the one who sustains me, the one who is with me, residing in me by His Spirit. Wherever He leads, I'll go. It's no secret, if you've been here recently, that as a church we've uh, adopted uh, a plan to, uh, to expand and renovate our ministry facilities for the glory of God. I want you to know as your pastor that I wholeheartedly and confidently believe that this is the direction God has for us as a church, excited about the future possibilities. I'm excited about his direction. And because I believe this is from him, Ashley and I have entertained conversations and sought the Lord in prayer as to how we can support this plan, how we can show that we are behind this plan. We began to think about what it means for us to sacrificially give toward this project. After prayer and conversation, we finally landed at a particular point, believing that God was leading us to set aside a certain weekly amount in addition to our regular offering, specifically for this Growing Together campaign. And church, I hope that many of you will have similar conversations in the days and weeks ahead. You'll hear many more opportunities. You'll hear more about how to, uh, to, to be involved in this, beginning with a brochure that will be mailed out to church members' homes in the next few days. But the direction that God has for us and how as a church we can be praying about that and supporting it. 
After all, if this was from God, how, how could we not stand behind it? And how could we not give sacrificially to it? And certainly, giving to this particular uh, Growing Together campaign is only one way that we can lay our lives before the Lord. Certainly not the only way. I hope that you'll join uh, in praying to seek uh, God's will if and how He is leading you to be a part of of this project. God desires all of us, not simply in this area. He desires all of us and He deserves all of us. Our minds, our hearts, our lives, our time, our talents, our resources. That's what we'll be looking at over the next several weeks in this altars uh, series. Coming and laying our lives before this one who, who gave his life on our behalf. And may the sacrifice on the altar of the cross inform and impact the way that we live for him. In the meantime, church, let's join in praising the God who gave his son on the altar of the cross for our sins. Let's do that now. Let's do that today. Let's do that this week. Let's do that in the days and months and years ahead as followers of Jesus. Let's praise the Lamb of God who makes sinners righteous in His sight. Can we do that? Can we do that now as, as David comes and leads us in a time of singing and a hymn of response? Let's, let's bow in prayer. Let's ask the Lord to lead us to glorify the name of the Lamb. Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for this time together. We thank you for your word. We thank you that your word is true. We thank you that it's right. We thank you that even when we don't fully understand it, your spirit is with us and guiding us through it, that we might receive it and respond to it in a way that glorifies your name. Father, it's our desire as individuals, as a people, to worship you, to praise you. Lead us to do so now. Help us to respond in declaring that the gift of Jesus' life is sufficient for our salvation. May we respond to it accordingly. Lead us in the name of Christ. Amen.